It's time for Drummer Nation. Bill Platt studied at the Eastman School of Music under William Street. A stint in the U.S. Army Band was followed by 40 years as principal percussionist of the Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra. Bill recorded well over 100 recordings covering much of the symphonic orchestral literature. He is the solo snare drummer on that orchestra's acclaimed recordings of Ravel's Bolero. Also an avid jazz drummer, Bill teaches occasionally for his friend Peter Erskine at USC. Bill serves on the advisory board of the Percussive Arts Society and has performed at PASIC with its symphonic emeritus. Introducing the Star Festival snare drum from Gary Astrich, a handcrafted and precision replica of the rarest and most iconic of drums. Ringo Starr's 1963 Ludwig Jazz Festival. Each instrument is authorized and hand-signed by Ringo Starr and will benefit his charity, the Lotus Foundation. These Regal Tip Session sticks feel great. They kind of put me in the mindset of a thinner and lighter 5A. Go to regaltip.com, order a pair, or go to your nearest music store. Pick up a pair, let us know exactly how you feel about the stick. Our latest innovation has opened the door for all drummers to have the same access as top musicians in the world. Custom cymbals. Now available to everyone. Your next sound just got more interesting. Sabian Custom Shop. Well, it's not often that I have a legend on the show, but I do today. Please uh, say hello to Bill Platt. Hi, Bill. Hi, Michael. Thank you for the legend thing. I don't think I deserve it, though. Well, you earned it, brother. You earned it. Where I'm, are old, you? I'm old enough. That's, That's right. right. Where are you talking to me from? I'm talking to you from my home in Cincinnati, Ohio. Okay, so uh, for people who don't know, Bill uh, held the legendary principal percussionist chair in the Cincinnati Philharmonic Orchestra for how long? Uh, actually, 39, 40 years. <laughs> Way to keep a job, brother. Yeah. <laughs> and it was uh, from 1971 until uh, 2010. And you played mostly, I mean, there's a lot of famous recordings you're on, but you were known as a snare drummer primarily? played a lot of snare drum. I played a lot of cymbals, a um, little bit of keyboard stuff. And uh, some timpani, uh, when it was called for, like second timpani parts and things. Well, let's dig into some of those. So a, a little bit of your background, you went to school at Eastman, right? I did. And, I, and who was your teacher there? My teacher was uh, Bill Street. Uh, now, there is a legend. Uh, he was a legendary teacher. If you uh, read his roster of students... Uh, through the years. He started in 1922 at Eastman, and he taught till the mid-70s, uh, or early 70s. Anyway, uh, his roster of students reads like a who's who in the, the percussion world, uh, starting with John Beck, who became his successor there at Eastman. Is there a, uh, a central dynamic to his teaching practice you would lay on me? Uh, very laid-back teacher. Um, very subtly demanding in, in what he wanted from each student. He was very good at evaluating students and evaluating students' strengths and their weaknesses. Uh, he concentrated a lot on their strengths. If he felt you were a timpani player, then most of your lessons were on timpani. 
If he felt you were a keyboard player, you had a lot of lessons on keyboard. If you were a good snare drummer like I was, a lot of your lessons were on snare drum. Although all of us uh, uh, covered all the instruments with him, uh, he was a fantastic timpanist. There are old recordings of him with the Rochester Orchestra, and the timpani playing is fantastic. Well, you became known as a snare drummer primarily, as we discussed. I, I know you like, you're known as having the best hands in the business. So <laughs> let's talk about hands a little bit. All right. Um, tell me if I'm right or wrong on this. It seems to me that years ago there were sort of uh, right and wrong ways to play and you had to do X, Y, and Z. And now it seems like there are so many proper ways that have been uh, fleshed out in all these great videos where you're playing traditional or match, but you're also playing uh, asymmetrical matched, let's say. Uh, yeah. In other words, people don't seem to be making such a distinction anymore as to whether or not you're playing your wrist flat or turn this way or thumbs up. Is that, right. is that, is that correct? They can all work? Okay. Two things. Number one, there is no right or wrong, in my opinion. And number two, if you get right down to it, there's not a whole lot of difference in the strokes that are made with traditional grip or with match grip. Uh, first of all, I don't like the word grip. It signifies something that we really don't do. It's, it's really a hand position in relationship to the stick, enabling the stick to do a lot of the work, but doing what you tell it to do. Uh, so it's a hand position, not, not a grip, so to speak. Um, if you look at, can you see my right hand? This is my right hand. Yes, you're on screen. And, and the stick goes in this way, okay? My traditional left hand, the hand is over this way, and the stick goes in this way. So really, the hands are like this. One is up, one is down, and the sticks go in parallel to the palm of the hand, only they're turned over. one is turned over, that's all. And the stroke becomes basically the same in both hands. Memphis Drum Shop is the world's premier provider of percussion instruments. With six showrooms of gear, MySymbol.com, the Memphis Gong Chamber, and a first-rate repair department, turn to Memphis Drum Shop for all your percussion needs. Hi, this is Stanton Moore. I've been playing and teaching drums for over 30 years. My new site, Stanton Moore Drum Academy, is the perfect online drum learning platform for any level drummer to learn how to play the drums the same way I did. I'm looking forward to seeing a lot of you as subscribers on the site, and I think we're going to have a lot of fun. To complicate everything, let me tell you what I think of. I think of a matched stroke rather than a matched hand position using traditional grip. So in other words, your wrist only works in a few ways. First of all, your forearm turns this way. Your wrist goes up and down this way, and it goes side to side this way. So if you use a combination of all three of those at the same time, you get the left-hand stroke, okay? In the right hand, if you do the same thing, then you get this kind of motion in the right hand, okay? And it's very much similar to the left hand motion, okay? Very much similar. 
rather than straight up and down this way to the right hand, my hand turns this way. So it's more of a matched stroke than it is a matched grip. That's a good point. I, 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 do you think there's a lot of consideration for whether or not you're playing what they would call French, German, or American, or something in the middle, this kind of axis? I, I think the stroke starts out sort of French, and it ends up at the bottom of the stroke in a German position in my right hand. Now, some people do it completely differently. I wish I could do it the same way Peter Erskine does in his right hand, because he plays simultan like this, and he calls that the bad dog stroke, you know, bad dog. I see. Okay. Uh -huh. And when he comes over to play snare drum, he plays the same way. So he doesn't have to turn his hand over to play snare drum. I see. I wish I could do that. He He's was... I know who does that. He would probably say he wish he could do what you did. <laughs> <laughs> he, does, he does that all the time. <laughs> I know he thinks the world of your playing and your mentoring. <laughs> now, um, do you think it matters if you're playing stylistically, if, if you're playing in a symphony orchestra or you're playing in a jazz group with a light touch or you're slamming for the big halls with a, a rock and roll band? Uh, you... you you're hitting on something that I'm writing a book about. And that is a, a book on touch. And there's one thing, well, let me say the, a little bit about the preface of the book. Uh, there's one thing that all the great drummers have in common. It's not chops. It's not uh, their drums. It's not their cymbals. It's their sense of touch. All the great drummers had great senses of touch, and the great drummers today have great senses of touch. Some of them had to really work on that to get that sense of touch. To others, it comes very naturally. Um, a good friend of mine, Bob Becker, a great xylophone player, never thinks about touch. He was born with a great sense of touch. Of course he doesn't think about it. He has it from the very beginning. Um, Others, uh, Dave Weckl, Steve Smith, these guys are practice-aholics, as I call them. And they practice and work and work and work for everything they do. And everything they have accomplished is through a lot of hard, hard work. So there are two kinds of people who get a sense of touch in different ways. But they all have it. All the great ones have it. And that's really what, uh, in my opinion, separates the amateurs from the pros, is the real good pros have tremendous senses of touch. Um, very difficult thing to teach. Very difficult thing to talk about. That's why, that's why a book has been in progress for about three years and it's still not finished. Well, I don't want to step on the book, but the touch uh, translates, obviously, to sound. Yes. When exactly. we talk about touch, we're talking about sound. Sounds totally different. And, and um, let's look at that a little bit. Uh, I think you will agree a drum is very easy to play uh, staccato. Exactly. <laughs> it's made for that. It's a little harder to play musically, we call it, where you have yes. uh, a legato touch, a warm right. open sound. Yes. These are the things you're looking for with your grip. Uh, well, sorry, your hand positions? Yes. 
Exactly, exactly. All of those things, all of those things put together, your thinking process. How are you thinking about making contact with that drone? Are you thinking of hitting it? Are you thinking of smashing it? Are you thinking of injuring it? Or are you thinking of touching it in a certain way to make contact with it? Uh, are you thinking of playing down? Are you thinking of playing up? Uh, which direction are you thinking the stick is moving? Obviously, a stick has to move down to make contact with the drum. But if you're thinking an upstroke rather than a downstroke that stops down, it's different, and it makes a different sound. Uh, the freedom of the stick in your hand, how, how little you have to hold it or apply any kind of pressure to it, the better sound it gets. If I could hold a stick with the palm of my hand and my little bitty finger, it would probably sound the best if I could play that way. But we have to use everything else up here to control it. But if I play like very quickly and even very loud, I sometimes I'll have students do this. I'll close my eyes and play single strokes very fast. And I'll say, okay, grab one of my sticks and pull it out of my hand. And they can easily pull it out of my hand because I'm holding it very, very loosely. And that has a tremendous effect on the sound and through the touch that that makes or creates. Um, you see some guys, they have what you might call a big sound, but that's yeah. not related to volume. Right. Exactly. Exactly. I can make a big sound from here or I can make a big sound from way up here. Uh, from here, it's sort of an explosion of energy that's sort of an upstroke. Mm -hmm. And it's a much better sound than a whap down this direction, uh, to me. I mean, it's all about sound. Very important point is my entire career, I have concentrated on the quality of sound and not so much the quality of how something feels. I will always sacrifice what feels good for what sounds good. If I have a pair of sticks that sound particularly good on a drum, and yet they feel awful, I'll use that pair of sticks because they sound good and deal with the fact that they feel awful. Um, that's what I... That's a good philosophy. point. Let's talk about some gear a little bit. Um, okay. What are we looking for in a snare drum if you're playing in a, a jazz trio as opposed to a, a big band, as opposed to an orchestral setting? And it varies a lot in orchestral settings too, right? Yes, yes. You mean what, what kind of drum am I looking for? Not a brand name, but sound-wise, uh, articulation-wise? Basically, I have snare drums that, depending on their, how they're set up with various snare combinations, uh, could be used for either. Um, it depends on the snares on the bottom of the drum. Uh, the bottom head, uh, there are two kinds of plastic heads for the bottom of snare drums. Well, there are more than that, but two basic ones. Uh, one is uh, three mils or three millimeters thick. Three mils thick, not millimeters, but three mils thick. And the other is two mils thick. Uh, the two mil in one manufacturer's uh, designation is a diplomat. The three mil is an ambassador. Uh, 
the ambassador is good with wire snares or wire coated snares or uh, what's the uh, silk silk wound snares work good with an ambassador cable snares gut snares guitar strings all work good with the diplomat thickness drum head on the bottom so you can take a drum and set it up any way you want if it has a decent snare bed in the bottom uh, with different snares and you can make it into a concert drum you can make it into a drum set drum what would be I, the difference though the difference is mainly the, the snare response uh, wire snares in general don't produce the kind of crispness and articulation with soft snare response that we get with uh, cable snares or gut snares. Um, if you get a wire drum to sound good soft, then it doesn't sound good loud. If you get it to sound good loud, it doesn't sound good soft. However, there is a, uh, uh, a wire snare drum that actually does sound great as a uh, concert drum. And that's the uh, Gladstone drum uh, that Billy Gladstone developed and the snare unit that he developed that Arnie Lang uses on his reproductions of the Gladstone drums. And it's wire snares that on the end of each wire, uh, the wires are cut, the curly wire snares are cut uh, the exact diameter of the drum. Uh, and he slips over a plastic tubing of some sort that goes over the each end of each snare and that wraps around the drum like a gut snare would or a cable snare would and I have a Gladstone drum with those curly wire snares on the bottom and without looking at it I defy anybody to tell that they're wire snares it sounds like a, a gut drum or a concert drum it's amazing be done. Uh, I know a lot of guys on the west coast use those kind of snares on there in the LA Philharmonic places Let's look further into gear. Let's look at sticks. Yeah. Uh, you would never use a persimmon stick in a bebop group, would you? No. I no, mean, what, I what's tell me about about the effect of sticks and preferences and types well, and so forth. Well, woods, first of all, uh, persimmon is is a little heavy for a drum set stick. Uh, there, uh, that's what I use for concert sticks. But for drum set sticks, I use hickory. Hickory is my favorite, and also a little bit. I have some that are uh, maple and they're okay too but mainly hickory for uh, uh, drum set sticks so the density of the wood is going to have an effect oh yeah yeah and the weight the weight of the wood the weight of the stick on any instrument makes a tremendous difference in the sound uh, and it's the weight not necessarily the size but the weight how about the beat of the stick for a grid cymbal sound as opposed to the beat of a stick for a great snare drum sound are they one and the same or can they uh, be or I have a concert stick that Cooperman makes for me. And we made, I said, why don't you take my concert stick and cut it down to about half the diameter to about a 5A, see if it'll make a good drum set stick. Well, it did, except for one problem. The neck got so thin, uh, they would probably be broken very easily. Uh, but it will, it will work. You can take a concert stick and cut it down and it will make a very good drum set stick. Um, so the, the bead, I think an elongated bead sounds better on cymbals than a round bead. Uh, however, the round bead sounds better on the drums than the, the elongated bead does. 
So the bead on my stick is, is sort of in between. It's like a teardrop shape. That's what I would think, and I wanted to hear you say it yeah. <laughs> instead yeah. of me, but that's consistent with my observation. Well, while we're digging in the sound, we have the shell construction, too. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I know uh, you play craviados, right? I do. I play some craviados. I play uh, the, the drums that I endorse at the moment are, are Mapex, uh, Majestic, and I use their concert drum. Uh, I've also been uh, uh, working with the folks at Tama, and, and they want to get into uh, uh, the concert end, and they, they're trying to come up with a concert drum. And you have some esoteric Cooperman kind of rope drums and things? What's that? Do you have any rope drums, Cooperman kind of? Oh, yes. I have, I have a rope drum that Cooperman made for me for my retirement, as a matter of fact. And before I was in the Cincinnati Orchestra, I was in the U.S. Army Band. So it says uh, on one side of the ribbon in the eagle's mouth on the drum, uh, eagle's beak, it says uh, the U.S. Army Band, and on the other side it says Cincinnati Symphony. Uh, so it was a nice drum they made for my uh, retirement. Beautiful. And, and I love rope drums. I mean, I played on rope drums all through the Army. Uh, I, I, uh, I carried a rope drum, and this will take you back, I carried a rope drum in Richard Nixon's inauguration parade <laughs> with the Army band, and what would that have been, 68, 69? 68 was his first, uh, yeah, 69 he would have been inaugurated the first time. Yeah, yeah it was uh, January of 69. Almost <laughs> froze to death, too. Man, was that cold. And we carried rope drums, um, which were nice. Well, we've looked at the effect of the the hands, the uh, yep. hand positions, the the sticks, the heads a little bit, the drums. Um, let's look at cymbals. You know, I'm a cymbal guy. Right. Um, Me first too. of all, you're you are too as well. You're a drum set guy as well as a classical right. musician, right? And um, could we say the same ride cymbal will work in an orchestra as it would in a jazz band? No. Tell me no, why. I don't think so. Um, well, in orchestra, you have more people, uh, more a, a, a louder sound, if you will. Uh, it's pretty incredible how loud a symphony orchestra is when they're playing at full strength. Uh, and to have a cymbal that'll cut through that, uh, you need a fairly, I would say, on the heavy side, ride cymbal, where with a smaller jazz group, uh, a thinner, more washy symbol is uh, more useful. Uh, where in, in the symphony orchestra you have to play that loud, uh, the wash will get in the way of the stick taunt, mm -hmm. uh, in my opinion. And I always used a heavier symbol in, in the orchestra than I did in small groups. Same for suspended mallet sounds? Yeah, absolutely. Well, the suspended, you're, you're, you're interested in getting a sustained sound. So if you can get that with a heavier cymbal, that's fine. Uh, a lot of that has to do with the mallet, too, that you use. If you use a mallet that's too hard, mm -hmm. you're going to hear beats. If you use one that's too soft, it's not going to speak well enough. Mm -hmm. So it has to sort of be in between and a, a nice uh, warm sound on a suspended cymbal that, that will create a sustained sound. And then there's the whole discussion about Piatti. <laughs> there are uh, three main types. Do I have that right? There's like Viennese and French and Germanic. Well, there's there are those sounds. There there are French sounds, German sounds, Viennese sounds. Uh, Expound upon that, if you will. Well, 
French French symbols or French symbol sound in my mind uh, uh, implies thinner, more splashy sounding symbols. They can be played softer and still respond. Where a, a heavier Germanic symbol or German symbol, which I would consider a heavy symbol, uh, won't respond at the softer volumes. Uh, Italians are sort of in between somewhere. But uh, uh, one thing you haven't brought up when you talk about piatti, there's another word for uh, pairs of symbols, or adue symbols as we call them, atu symbols, uh, and it's called cinelli, which is another Italian word that also means a pair of symbols. I have asked every Italian conductor I've ever played for what the difference is between Piatti and Cinelli. They have no idea, and nobody knows. But if you look at Beethoven Ninth, uh, the symbol part does not say Piatti; it says Cinelli. Um, if you look at some Rossini symbol parts, it says Cinelli rather than Piatti. And we have no idea what the difference is. And I don't know whether anybody does. If so, you ever find out, let me know. Yeah, it sounds like a doctoral thesis to me. It does. It does. You should have, I'm sure you have a student that's up to that. That would be a good, <laughs> good topic. I'd send one on a chase for that because I don't think you're ever going to find an answer. I think I'm, I know a little something about symbols, and I've never heard that. No, no, but Cinelli is another word. C-I-N-E-L-L-I. Didn't know. Didn't know. Um, and... So you were talking about the various the various symbols. I, long story short, when I was uh, uh, full time with the orchestra, I probably had thirty pairs of symbols for different things. I had pairs of symbols for particular parts of, of pieces. Um, I had a pair of symbols for the uh, uh, unhatched chicks movement, the pictures in an exhibition. One little pair of fourteen inch symbols, and that's all I ever used them for. Was that one little movement of that one piece? Uh, so symbols are very specialized for, for various pieces. I remember Chris Lamb took me backstage at, at Avery Fisher, yeah. and there's a, there's a chest there uh, <laughs> that's like golden tr steamer trunk lined with velvet slats, and he had in there some of the greatest yeah. crash and suspended symbols I'd ever seen in my life, and he gave me a little lesson on them. Uh, uh, they were, uh, I think many of them came from Arnie Lang, right? Right, right. They were Arnie's uh, old case, uh, the old Constantinople gig. Mm -hmm. uh, and also, Chris has been playing some uh, that were made by uh, Roberto uh, Spizzacchino. Yeah. Spizzacchino, I guess, is a critic. Anyway, uh, using some of his symbols, um, I've been a Zildjian artist my, pretty much my whole career, so I use mostly their symbols. But I do have some old case, too. That, that I used uh, long before the company in this country. Uh, just as a point of clarification, when people our age say old K's, we're talking about K's from a different company in Istanbul in a different century. Yes, exactly. It's 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 the Zildjian company, but but uh, they were in uh, Constantinople before the name was even changed to Istanbul, right. uh, and they're very very old symbols. Uh, some good, some not so good. They, they varied so much, which I think is, is part of the fun of symbols, is searching for good ones. I think so. Really nice ones. That, that wasn't meant as a dig in any way, just, to, no, no, just no. a clarification. Okay, let's talk about the thing that drum set players always talk about when they get into okay. a symphony orchestra, and that is 
the downbeat. There's, where's one? There, where's one? Exactly. Where's Waldo? Where's one? There's something that is referred to as being on the stick, uh-huh. right? Which is if a conductor goes one, two, one, two, you know it's going to be a ding, dong, 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 bang, right? Boom. Whatever you want to say on the stick. But right. in an orchestra, the joke is how do you, when do you play? And everybody says, I don't know, just don't be first. Right. There, there's there's per diem between this and when the sound actually happens. There, people get per diem in there somewhere. <laughs> time, for a, time for a smoke break. Yeah, yeah right. So, so what is the rule? I mean, is 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 it is it on the up? It's every it's every every conductor's different or what? Every conductor's different. Uh, in general, uh, German conductors are notorious for wanting. Boom! Right, right on the ictus. Okay, right on the bottom of the of the beat. Uh, very sticklers about that. Uh, others, French conductors especially, are much more bah after the beat. You know, uh, I was brought into the symphony, our orchestra, by a conductor by the name of Thomas Shippers. And Tommy was a good friend of uh, Leonard Bernstein and a lot of people around the New York scene at that time. And he liked everything late. Uh, and he would literally give a downbeat and it was about three bounces after the downbeat before any sound happened. And he uh, always had a, a statement, play as late as you dare. Really? Which is pretty scary. That's kind of like chasing the click in, in, a, exactly. in a studio. Yeah. One of the all-time great stories is we got a new uh, piano player with our orchestra, a new pianist, concert orchestra pianist. And he was used to doing opera rehearsals with singers. And boom, where everything was right on the beat. So his first rehearsal, piano player with Shippers. Shippers gives one of his notorious downbeats. And boom, Henry comes in with the piano chord. And Shippers just shook his head and started again. Well, at intermission, Shippers called me into his office. And whenever you got called into the conductor's office, you knew you were in trouble for something. It wasn't good, right? So, yeah. So I, I'm thinking, oh, God, what did I do now? So I got called in, and Shippers is circling his desk. He's got about three cigarettes going. And he's shaking his head. He says, Bill, it's Henry. He plays too early. He said, can you speak to him? And I said, well, of course, Maestro, I can speak to him. He's a friend. I'll tell him. I said, you know, no problem. He said, Shiver says, oh, thank you, Bill. Thank you so much. He said, I didn't know who else to ask because you play late so well. (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying to figure out Compliment or what? I think he meant it as a compliment, but he meant you were in sync, simpatico with him. Yeah, anyway, that that's the way he thought. And really, I don't think our orchestra has ever gotten over that. It plays late no matter who conducts. And it really is, uh, to some conductors, it's really disconcerting. I mean, they get all goofed up trying to... Well, you know, I, have a, I have an anecdote about that. I've always been a drum set guy and a jazz player, and I was asked to sub with, with the uh, uh, Birmingham uh, Pops Orchestra. Yeah. Okay, so I go up to make the rehearsal, and they, the guys and I've got my drum set, and the guy say, hey, can you play? We need a crash cymbal. Can you play crash cymbal? Yeah. Okay, I hadn't had crash cymbals in my head in 20 years, but he said, well, it's the first tune. Okay, so I get it. It's the first note. 
and it's fortissimo. Yeah. And I'm scared shitless, man. <laughs> so this guy gives one of these beats I've never seen him before, and it's something like, you know, that yeah. was the downbeat, and he right. yells at me, late! And, uh, man, I was petrified. That's the most nervous I've ever been, was just to try to make a cymbal crash right. on the damn downbeat with a All conductor right. I've never seen before. Especially out of nowhere. There's no time before it. Exactly. Never seen a, a note he had conducted. I think they set me up. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, that, that happened to uh, Peter, too. Peter Erskine, he played, the first time he played with, uh, I don't know, it was L.A. or one orchestra he played with. And uh, he had to come in on the downbeat, and he was way ahead of everybody else. <laughs> and, uh, man, that really weird. I don't know how you guys do that. Yeah, I'm glad I'm not alone. The other and thing I, that, that frightens I, the shit out of me as you dare. Really. Uh, yeah. The other thing that scares me to death is um, pianissimo buzz rolls oh, yes. in an orchestral setting. Because yes. you guys play it, it sounds like toilet tissue tearing. Right. <laughs> you know, it's just steam escaping. Let me tell you one thing Perfection. About, about soft playing. This has nothing to do with the, the mechanics of doing it other than this one little step that some people never think about. Whenever uh, I see students today, for some reason, when they start to play anything, they start with their stick up here. Whenever I start to play something especially soft, I already have my sticks on the head. Okay? On the head. I can look up, see the conductor, I can see my part, I don't have to look down at the drum. I know where it is because my sticks are already on it and I start. That's a good point. Okay. And a lot of a lot of people just don't do that. And I think starting from air, it just above a head is very hard to start softly. But if you start with the sticks on the drum and just lightly lift up before you start to play a second or so, uh, it makes it much much easier. Just that simple thing makes soft playing easier. So what do we owe you for that lesson? <laughs> yeah, mail in the... Uh, well, let's see. My first lessons when I was a kid were $2.25. So that, uh, <laughs> I'll was send you... You've been good today. I'll send you 10 bucks. <laughs> well, I don't want to keep you too long. These shows, are, we like to keep them around a half an hour, but you've been very, very uh, truthful and, and uh, putting it right there. Uh, I enjoy doing these kind of things. At, at this stage of my life, I'm uh, 74 years old now, and uh, I really enjoy helping other people, especially young students, uh, better their playing. I do it from what I call a natural position, the way your hands and arms hang at your side, just bend at your elbow, that's your hand position. Um, change anything, any, any position other than that, and you're asking for trouble. So uh, I, I sub for uh, Peter out at USC every now and then. Uh, and uh, I, I do what I call coaching more than teaching uh, because I'm dealing with students who are uh, mostly graduates of college already and they're auditioning for jobs and they're working on auditions and that kind of stuff um, and how would you play something in an orchestra and how should I play it in an audition which are two different animals 
Well, let's so. look at the next. That'll, if you do another one for me, that'll be where we start off. Okay? okay. I'd love to have you back. And we don't have a long time, but that means you can come back and do some more, okay? Thanks, Michael. Thank you very much. I always uh, respect you and your career, and I love seeing you at the trade shows and all. And I appreciate that you're so giving of your, your, your energy and your efforts and your knowledge. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Talk to you soon. Okay. Thank you, Michael.